0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, your host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Manisha Gelman about her work with the Emerson Prison Initiative. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gelman.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about this program. But before we dive into the prison initiative, will you please tell us about yourself?
1: Yes, so I'm an associate professor of political science at Emerson College, which is a small private college in right in downtown Boston, Massachusetts, and I've been uh, teaching there for the last almost 7 years. And I, the Emerson Prison Initiative is one of, one of many things that I do, but I, I teach international politics and human rights, and I have been working for, uh, for several years as an expert witness in asylum cases. I focused on people coming from El Salvador and Mexico. And in my own scholarship, I also do a lot of work on indigenous rights and social movements, particularly in the global South, but also now more in Northern California as well.
2: And our listeners are uh, overwhelmingly, either students are actively working in higher ed. And so one of the things I, I like to ask guests is, how did you get from A to B? When, when did you know what you wanted to study and how did you get from... You know, freshman year undergrad to to where you are now?
1: That's a great question. I grew up in the far, far north of California and near the Oregon border, uh, where we say it's behind the Redwood Curtain in the Humboldt County area. And I came of age in the mid to late 1990s when the battle over old growth redwood trees and protecting habitat for animals that live in the redwood forest was really at a, at a all time high. And so as a young person in high school, I became involved in environmental justice efforts in efforts to save the redwood trees from clear cutting. And it really was a formative time for me in developing a political conscious about how environmental rights relate to human rights and what everyday people, people like a 16-year-old that cares a lot but doesn't have a lot of uh, tools or skills necessarily to be a political activist, can actually get involved and make a difference in some way with justice issues. So that interest continued to uh, to really condition my college experience. I went off to to Bard College in upstate New York and was already very much identified as someone working for social change. And once I got there, I fell in with a group of like-minded activists and spent much of my time in college uh, organizing protests and going to protests and being very politically involved all the while working on my undergraduate degree in, in political studies and Latin American studies. And so in some ways, it's been a pretty linear path for me of seeing things that I cared really deeply about as a young person and trying to figure out how to intervene in them. And to some extent, that's what I've done <laughs> through, through college, through, through a master's in peace and conflict studies, and then through a PhD in political science to, to the role that I have now.
2: And you shared a little bit off air that you briefly had a job in radio. Was there a detour at some point before you became a professor? Or was that a job you had as an undergrad?
1: There were there were many detours. <laughs> those would those would take a whole radio show just to talk about. But very briefly, yeah, I took a lot of gaps in between um, moments of my education for various reasons. I took a gap year after high school before I started college when I backpacked through Mexico and Guatemala, um, which was definitely formative in terms of my focus on Latin American studies and my role now as a as a professor of Latin American studies, among other things. Uh, I took three years after college when I I started as the coffee-getting intern at a, a World of Possibilities weekly radio show, which was focused on, on social and environmental issues. And by the time I left there as the associate producer of the show, and it was really work that I felt like was connected to the kind of um, political issues that I cared about, because it was like, like you're trying to do, featuring voices of people who have interesting stories to tell, and we were focused on change makers, people who are trying to, to make change for, for the social good. So I did that before going on to do a master's program. And then I had another year between when the master's in peace and conflict, which I did in Argentina and Australia finished. And then, and then I went on to do my PhD and I I tell my students now, you know, if you can figure out how to do it, a gap year is a great idea because it helps you experience uh, the larger world. And, and I found for myself, it let me really focus in, in a very, deep and committed way to what I was studying once I had the opportunity to step back from the daily grind of work and be a student. I
2: appreciate you filling in those gaps because I think that sometimes when we have such a short summary, I went to this school and this school and this school now I have this job, we get this idea that learning is really all in the classroom and that we really develop our intellectual mind through a lot of reading and we do, but there's also these immersive life experiences That enrich us and give us a better perspective. As you said, living near the Redwoods gave you a perspective on environmental justice, you just wouldn't have gotten in a different environment. You would have gotten a different perspective about maybe a different environmental problem, but not that one. And traveling gave you other perspectives and language skills and things. So when we put them all together, it's it's all um sort of the larger higher ed package in a way.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I I think it's it's good to show that deviating from what might feel like the norm can sometimes open up even more interesting opportunities and and perhaps give us the space to reflect on who we are in the world before we're paying semesterly <laughs> for the experience of of learning learning more about the self at the same time.
2: And so, you've had your job at Emerson for about seven years. At what point did you become involved in the Emerson Prison Initiative, what's known as EPI?
1: I, I'm actually the founder of the Emerson Prison Initiative, in addition to being its its current director. And so, I there's a there's a long story there as to how it came to be. But I, I started at Emerson in in January of 2015, and I. I, by 2016, had organized a guest lecture series for Emerson faculty to come to uh, MCI Concord, a Massachusetts prison, and offer some lectures on, on their, their expertise. And that was a, a pilot moment where we were just checking out the relationship between the Department of Correction. And Emerson to see if we could build something. So I've, in that respect, I've been at the helm of the program since its inception.
2: And prison initiatives uh, are happening at several different schools. Is, you mentioned you were undergrad at Bard. Am I correct in thinking Bard is one of the schools that is part of these initiatives?
1: You are correct in thinking that and the Bard Prison Initiative, I consider it a sister program of the Emerson Prison Initiative. And I was, in fact, an undergraduate when uh, Max Kenner, who's the longtime executive director of the Bard program, was was launching that program. And so I was one of the very early student volunteers in the beginning nearly 20 years ago, actually more than 20 years ago. Uh, and And we, the Emerson Prison Initiative, is part of the Consortium for the Liberal Arts in Prison that is based at Bard, the Bard Prison Initiative. And so there's a handful of programs across the United States that are uh, joined together in a, a basic philosophy about what it means to, to include incarcerated students in access to higher education.
2: So let's unpack that. Let's dive in. What does it mean to include incarcerated students in higher education?
1: It's a more complicated question than you might think, because every institution is going to do that inclusion in different ways based on a range of factors that shape what higher education institutions are able to offer to incarcerated students. At Emerson, one of the things that uh, that I'm most proud of at the school is that we've worked really hard to, to institutionalize the Emerson Prison Initiative to the point that EPI students are Emerson College students. When someone is admitted to the Emerson Prison Initiative in the prison, they become admitted students to the college, which has real implications if someone leaves prison before they've completed their degree, it does open up the possibility of of finishing their degree on the Boston campus. But different programs will have different constraints, just based on how, what board of trustees think about the program, or what president or provost's visions of the program should be, or dean's vision of visions of the program. And so, for the Emerson Prison Initiative, we run a rigorous and competitive admissions process for for applicants who are college eligible within the prison, and then we and I'm happy to walk through that admissions if it's if it's of interest and then we select our student cohort and they take classes over a five roughly a 5-year period working towards a bachelor's degree from Emerson College on a, with credits accumulating on an official Emerson College transcript that is as similar as possible to the kind of degree pathway they would do if they were a student on the Boston campus.
2: I would love to hear about the application process. I, I think that would be uh, something that would be of great interest to listeners. You're our inside window into how all of this works.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So the, the first time we ran admissions was in fall uh, summer of 2017. And we first held an information session about 100 college eligible people in the prison were gathered together in a space where uh, myself and another colleague from the Bard Prison Initiative, actually, who is mentoring me, providing some technical assistance in running the admissions, held an information session and fielded questions about what the program was and what we would offer. We then invited those people who were deemed college eligible, which meant that they either had uh, achieved a high school diploma before incarceration, or had a GED or high set a uh, high school equivalency e- exam completion once incarcerated, or also on the on the outside. Um, of those hundred people that gathered together, we had uh, just over ninety applicants, and they those ninety applicants went ahead and wrote an essay in response to one of three liberal arts prompts. So I found excerpts. One was an excerpt of a uh, Orhan Pamuk novel, Snow. (laughs) And, And I included a paragraph and then said, discuss. Another excerpt was from another text. And again, just asking applicants to write an essay, engaging with the text in some way. And then myself and a panel of four other faculty members read those essays and scored them in a, in a rubric. And then of the top 40 essay writers or from, from the pool of 90, we invited the top 40 essay writers for an in-person interview with myself and Daniel Karpowitz from the Bard, who was then with the Bard Prison Initiative. And then of those 40 interviewees, we selected 20 applicants to whom we offered admission. And so that was how we created the first cohort. And then just this past May, we essentially replicated that process minus the in-person information session, which COVID did not allow us to have. We instead passed out informational flyers, um, but then again, invited college eligible people. This time we had uh, more than 60 applicants, went ahead and did in-person interviews with 40 of them and again, selected 20. So in that way we've been able to draw two cohorts of students at the prison in a, a competitive process where, where it, it's definitely not guaranteed that everyone who wants a spot will get in, but it means that people who are, um, who are perceived as, as college ready, not necessarily in terms of their technical, technical skills in terms of writing, but, but who show evidence of that real intellectual spark and a hunger for learning coming through their essays, those are the folks that we then bring together in the classroom.
2: So it differs a little then from a traditional college application model in that you can't take applications every year. You get your cohort all the way to graduation before you're ready to open applications for a new cohort. And then when they graduate, that's when you will reopen applications. Is that right?
1: It's a little bit yes, a little bit no. So we, we started our second cohort while our first cohort still has one year remaining. So this year at the prison, we have two cohorts running simultaneously, um, but, but we do not offer admissions every year. And that's both a financial constraint because it does cost money to pay faculty to teach classes. Uh, And it's also a constraint because the Department of Correction has limited space and doesn't want, you know, doesn't want the whole school wing in the prison taken over by the college program. So there's constraints both on the DOC side and on the Emerson and the funding side in terms of uh, not being able to do annual admissions uh, but we do have simultaneous cohorts this year and then the first cohort will graduate and the second one will probably proceed alone for a couple of years and then hopefully before the second one graduates we'll go ahead and do another admission cycle.
2: And so are all the faculty um, like yourself also simultaneously working full-time on Emerson's Boston campus or are some of the faculty dedicated prison initiative staff
1: No, we don't have any dedicated prison initiative uh, staff or faculty. So all of us, both who administer the program, who serve as as the administrative staff, we're all uh, full-time faculty on the Boston campus. And the faculty that teach in the prison, the the vast majority of them are Emerson College faculty, but we've also been able to create partnerships with Clark University, which is in Worcester, Mass., and also with Brandeis. Uh, in Waltham, Mass and, and with faculty from who have guested in to teach classes from other institutions. So particularly for faculty whose institutions don't have anything like a college and prison program, we're able to provide the opportunity for them to teach in the prison. Uh, and sometimes that can fulfill Require, curricular requirements, where we might not have faculty volunteerism or ability to to teach at the prison because it is a logistical commitment, and so we've been able to to successfully navigate those partnerships that have I think been quite mutually beneficial.
2: So, about how many hours a week do you personally spend um, working in the prison itself during the school year?
1: Well, much of what I do now is actually outside the prison. So the first semester of our first cohort, I, t- I taught the first class that was offered as a weekly class. And when faculty sign up to teach classes, they're going in for fifteen weeks, uh, one day a week to teach a class that's about three and a half, three and a half hours. And so, um, sorry, it's from one to three forty-five, so two hours and forty-five minutes. And then they work with and coordinate with tutors who hold study halls that support their classes an additional day a week. So faculty will let tutors know where they're at in the syllabus and what kinds of uh, assistance they might want the tutors to provide. Because because faculty only go in one day a week, we need to have a, an office hours-like space. And so pairing with tutors Uh, some of whom come to us through the PD Green program and some of us uh, some of the tutors work directly with EPI. That provides an important academic support network because on a traditional campus you'd have things like a writing center or an office of student success or other sort of student supports that are really challenging to replicate within the prison and so the study halls are a way to complement that. Um, my, My first semester I was I was Doing a lot of that, so I was teaching the class. I was working with tutors. I was I was there a lot, building the administrative relationships. And now, a lot of what I do is is working on the outside of the actual facility, overseeing and managing the faculty who are going in uh, on a weekly basis and and running their own classes and working with tutors who are who are holding that study hall space.
2: I would imagine on the Emerson campus in Boston. Freshman students choose from the catalog and they have a a number of things that they take. It sounds like uh, in the prison itself, all 20 students take each of the classes that the professors come in to teach.
1: Yeah, correct. So there may be programs, and I think now the BARD program is certainly big enough where students get to have variation and, and can pick and choose which classes they take at a given time. Um, and there may be other programs in the US that, that are similarly large enough to have a more, more student agency over their semester by semester curriculum. EPI, unfortunately, is still too small to offer that because for every class you offer, you have to be able to pay that faculty member. And we're still at the point of having uh, one set of classes that all students take at a time. For our first cohort, it was a little tricky because when the program first launched, it was launched as a pilot for the first two years. And so we didn't have official approval of a BA degree. We had approval to accumulate credits on a transcript. And it really was in the second half of the second year um, after the Emerson's president and provost had come in to visit the prison and to meet the students that we were able to secure a commitment for the BA pathway. And so if, you if know, faculty are listening to this We're interested in trying to start this at their own facilities, I think it is important to keep in mind that a lot of this program building is incremental. We take a step forward, we pause, we check in with people, we figure out what the points of concern are, we try to resolve them, we take another step forward. And that's just the reality of of Any sort of institution building work, Um, and so you know we may we may get to a place where students can choose choose their classes. For now, what we try to do is just be extremely transparent with applicants. The degree pathway that EPI offers is a Bachelor of Arts in Media, Literature, and Culture. This is what the the curricular snapshot looks like. We're drawing on media studies, we're drawing on literary studies, and we're combining that with the general education requirements that every Emerson student on the Boston campus has to take. And so by being just re- really uh, really transparent in terms of what kind of curriculum students would be signing up to take, we, we try to mitigate the fact that they don't actually get to choose the classes the way that, uh, the way that a traditional Emerson-Boston student would get to select.
2: It sounds like the benefit is then that everybody who's doing that college program is doing the exact same classes at the exact same time. So you can find a study buddy, you can bounce ideas off each other, you can work together um, in ways that students on a more traditional campus can pick and choose how to find somebody to do that with. These students all can identify, okay, all 20 of us are in this together. And so they can see who their cohort is, and they can work together. So it seems like there's a benefit there um, from the learning end of it that they have each other.
1: I think that's absolutely right. The cohort's after their first year, know each other very well, for better or worse. (laughs) They know each other's strengths. They know each other's weaknesses. Uh, Sometimes interpersonal tension may, may flare up, but they are also each other's best support network. And the kind of mentorship that we've seen over the years with students who are stronger in one particular subject, supporting and helping students who might need a little extra assistance work through a problem set for economics or an essay revision for a literature class is really powerful. And I do think that that is an important benefit of the cohort model, though it does have its limitations. It allows students uh, a kind of deep knowledge of each other's intellectual life. And and thus far, we've seen them really support each other through, through some very challenging circumstances.
2: How does it work as far as books and materials? Do, have you established a library uh, there? Um, and how how are resources brought in and how are they paid for?
1: All good questions. We The Emerson Prison Initiative provides all of the academic materials necessary for students. So we organize semesterly materials drop-offs that include notebooks and pens and books and course packs, everything that students will need in a given semester to succeed. We have to coordinate that and drop it off about a month before we actually need the materials because the materials go to a warehouse where they're they're fluoroscoped and and go through the security process, and then they eventually make their way to the school. Um, we, we do have a couple of shelves in the prison library, although we, we've been advocating to have more space. Space is at a premium in both the school building of the prison as well as the library. And so uh, we still don't quite have the resource space set up that we would like to have, but we're continuing to work with uh, with our DOC colleagues in trying to make those materials more available. Um, but we do, we do bring in the books and, and materials. And right now Emerson college pays a portion of that. And then I do as a volunteer do much of the fundraising to, to make up the, the part of the budget that is not covered by the college from individual donors and foundations
2: Pell grants can be a great source of funding for adult learners. My basic understanding is that people in prison or people who have a prison record are often barred from obtaining Pell grants. Are there blocks for these students getting scholarships?
1: So right as of now, Emerson College is, is not coordinating Pell for the Emerson Prison Initiative, which means that uh, the college is providing tuition remission for those students, meaning we're not charging incarcerated students. And we're also not dealing with the second chance Pell. Um, the Bard Prison Initiative organized very successfully around a campaign that that was part of restoring Pell access for incarcerated students. And I know that there's a lot of momentum in the college and prison community about people trying to figure out how to administer Pell. Um, it is an administrative lift and the Emerson Prison Initiative continues to, uh, to mostly rely on faculty volunteerism to function. So we haven't had the administrative capacity to be able to, to even really look into the time constraints that Pell requires. I absolutely think that access to Pell should be an access for anyone that wants to go to college, including incarcerated students. I also think there's a lot of unanswered questions about how quality control will be regulated. When I teach my human rights class or I teach U.S. Latin American studies on the Boston campus, I say to students, if you want to understand the problem, follow the money follow the economic story for what's going on for why a cell phone is produced the way that it is or why activists are protesting a mine in Guatemala follow the money and so i do think with the restoration of pell we also have to look at who's going to try to profit off of this situation and we've already there's have already been cases where for-profit higher education institutions have tried to uh, to swoop in to offer offering college to, uh, incarceral settings in ways where it's not quite clear that they're operating with the best interests of students in mind. And so in, in that way, I'm cautious about what the, what the post Pell restoration landscape will look like, but I, I hope to be, I hope to be able to stay an optimist about the benefits that it can bring to, to students who are in prison.
0: Slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: What do students tell you is their biggest challenge of doing their degree this way?
1: I think one of the biggest challenges for students working on college degrees in prison is the separation from the prison environment and the college environment. So when students walk into our classroom, they are college students, and we encourage them to, to be college students in that space and to set down some of the prison nomenclature and and culture that that orchestrates so much of their life outside. And so, for example, when students come in to their first class in the, in the beginning, we encourage them to to state their name as they would like to be called in college. And so for some people, that might be a significantly different name (laughs) than how they're referred to in prison. People have prison nicknames that may not be who they want to be in the college classroom. And I think that 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 brief anecdote is just symbolic of a larger issue that that can be a challenge for success, which is really being able to separate one's identity into different arenas at different times. Um, that extends to things like most of our students are double bunked in cells, and though we have we have inquired as to the viability of making a college dorm style housing unit where college students would be able to. to be housed with other students that doesn't yet exist. And so a lot of times we have college students who are uh, double bunked with people who are not at a place in their life where they're thinking about school. And so they're going to want to have the TV on at different times and they're going to want to have the lights on and off at different times. And I think the lack of control over the physical environment has really been an obstacle for, uh, for some students more than others because they're not able to go to the library when they want or when they have an assignment due and just hunker down for some quiet study time. They're having to negotiate a a prison environment where being a college student is still a, a kind of minority identity in a larger facility where most of the people are not enrolled in college. Are a lot of your students first gen? Almost all of them. Yeah, I think there's maybe one, a couple across both cohorts that um, you know that have, are not first-gen, but most of them are. And so there's a hidden transcript at play in college success. One of the things I think EPI has been quite successful in, and I really am so appreciative of the faculty that teach for us in this regard, is a focus on trying to make that hidden transcript of college success more visible by, by talking about it directly. And just as an example, as we were doing... A series of meetings for orientation for this new cohort that just started in uh, in summer of 2021. We had several sessions on soft skills, things like time management, things like materials organization, things like note taking, because we understand that there is a hidden co- hidden transcript to college success that some students on our traditional campus campuses walk into the room knowing about because. They've been trained that way because they're not first gen. They had college educated parents or they uh, they went to high schools where those sorts of behaviors were drilled into them. We don't make those assumptions about students in the Emerson Prison Initiative and making that hidden transcript explicit has been really beneficial to students and faculty alike. And I think for for any of us that are interested in this work, it's an important contribution to conversations around inclusion that we can bring back to traditional campuses.
2: You have to unpack things and not make assumptions, which benefits professors at all levels of higher ed, but I think perhaps it becomes more clear to them when, when they walk into the prison and they realize that they are now in a very different environment and so are their students. Exactly. What do the students share with you as their biggest motivation? It sounds like there's every obstacle in their way. What, what keeps them going?
1: Many students are parents and they have children outside at, of all ages and the kind of intergenerational influence Of this work has been really powerful to to hear them convey back to us. So some of them are parents of young children who, for a variety of reasons, may be struggling in school. And so being able to say, hey, you know, I'm your dad and I'm in school too. I'm struggling with my homework. It's frustrating being able to relate on that way uh, and then encourage their children to stay in school has been I think really motivating for some, um, some who have older kids, kids getting close to high school completion. We've had some, heard some success stories of them saying, "Hey, I'm doing college. Why don't you apply for college too? We can be college students together." And and actually encouraging the the teens and young adults in their life to to take that step. Um, and so that has been a very motivating thing. I think being a college student in prison allows EPI students to have a different layer of their identity that brings pride to them and also pride to their families in a context when many of them may be dealing with pretty deep-seated feelings of of shame or regret about whatever path brought them into prison. And so being able to provide a pathway for an alternative narrative, both for self and also for family and particularly for those in parenting situations has been just just beautiful to watch that unfold.
2: How does it change their relationships with each other? You said on the first day you invite them to, to tell you what their name is going to be in the college classroom and to really make that mindset, sh- mindset shift when they walk in the door to the classroom that yes, it's a classroom in prison, but prison life is on the other side of that door and this is their identity as a student. And they may be coming in there with an unpleasant surprise about some of the other students they're now going to be with, people that they can't stand or that they have very real differences with, as well as people they're happy to see in the classroom. Um, how, how do these dynamics um, start to work themselves out? Or do you see at the end of the five years, there the people who were still on the other side a very real divides with each other are still there, but they've somehow managed to go ahead and do the program Knowing that that person is in the classroom with them for five years.
1: Well, they've absolutely managed to go ahead and continue doing the program, even with some real differences of opinions and politics and worldviews. We're at the uh, we're at about the midway point of year five, so cohort one will complete the five year degree at the at the end of summer 2022. And it, I mean, maybe just an aside before I answer the question directly. I don't talk to them about the question that you just asked because I'm focused on supporting them as college students academically and making sure that there's enough socio-emotional grounding that they can do the academic work, but I'm not getting into a sociological analysis of them. We're not doing research on them. We're providing a college pathway. So I'm, I'm hesitant to speak for them, but what I can convey is just from observing their dynamics, they are dealing with the same sort of uh, tensions and relational navigations that students on traditional campuses are dealing with, with an extra layer of intensity because they are incarcerated together. So in a traditional campus classroom, there will be the students who don't like each other, the students who talk too much, <laughs> the students who uh, didn't do the reading but fill, you know, fill in space anyway and will annoy other people. All of those sorts of things can play out in in a prison classroom, but but I think there there are some differences. One is the ground rules of respect that many gifted educators are used to crafting and facilitating in the classroom is a baseline for the management of our intellectual communities in prison. We expect that people are we we teach them to be versed in. And and some of them are already versed in how we address the idea and not the person, how we use I statements, how we focus on the problem and not the identity of the person who might be articulating the problem. So those sorts of basic best practices in creating inclusive and safe environments for difficult dialogue are what we expect from EPI professors. And then I think there's also an element of the students who make it into the program, who have gone through this rigorous admissions program, are are really eager to have a space that is different than prison life. And so they are willing for the most part to to manage their own differences. And if people come in where they have either family backgrounds or previous street life affiliations that put them in tension with each other, That has not, none of that has been an issue in the classroom because people have been able to set it down and focus on addressing the intellectual work to be done.
2: And that really seems to be the core that works in any classroom, which is everybody's there to do the work and having those ground rules of how we're all going to approach the work keeps redirecting everybody back towards it. What are other um, assumed uh, pitfalls that you, you guys just aren't aren't encountering, things that people on the outside might assume would be problems in the classroom that that you don't have?
1: (laughs) Well, I think one of the most gratifying things for faculty in terms of teaching in the prison is that in, on, the, on the Boston campus, for example, as I'm sure many, many, many campuses around the, around the U.S. and around the world, um, students, undergraduates struggle to read. They struggle to keep up with the reading load. And this is the perpetual faculty complaint that, oh, the students aren't doing the reading. It has been um, just such a pleasure seeing EPI students read and read again and bring numerous questions and critiques of the text to the classroom. So I don't think that we deal with the uh, student apathy that might be more familiar to those of us teaching on a traditional campus in the same way, because there is a really intense hunger for knowledge and an understanding that it's a pretty phenomenal opportunity to be in college while in prison. And the recognition of that privilege translates into a, a really powerful work ethic. I, I do think it's important to mention, though, that one of the stereotypes we have to combat with people is the the stereotype that people in prison have nothing to do, that, oh, all they have is time. In fact, almost all of the EPI students and, and students in other uh, prisons and college programs are working in some way. They're working in prison industries. There's, they're working as janitors. They're working in the kitchen. They're working in a variety of ways or they are participating in other court required programs or volunteer programs that on self-improvement or they're mentoring other people. Um, they're working on their cases. So they're meeting with lawyers. They're navigating the law library. They're they're busy <laughs> in other words. And I think that is one of the things that surprises people the most when we talk about the program is it's not like they just have infinite time, but they do have a real dedication to being students that translates into that work ethic, but it's not because they have nothing else to do. It's because they as as conscious and agentive adults are making the choice to do that.
2: That was going to be my next question. Prison life is pretty structured and prisoners don't have A lot of say in asking to have their schedule switched around and because they do work and because they do have required meetings to attend for a variety of different reasons, how how do you all uh, carve out that classroom time so that it matches when the students can actually be there?
1: we work closely with the department of corrections staff on the scheduling so there's only a couple of what are called movement times times when incarcerated people are allowed to move between their housing units and and other buildings in the prison to attend classes and so we fit our class schedules we we tell our faculty that you know they can do the morning movement or the afternoon movement but it's not like they can just choose any random time slot so they have to fit into what whatever the prison movement schedule is. Um, and then we give students a lot of lead time with the schedule. So we can say starting two months from now, you'll have classes on these days. And then people thus far have been able to arrange their uh, job shifts accordingly. I, I honestly don't know how much of that is uh, the the Department of Correction recognition that okay, this person is a student who's going to have this schedule and therefore they're going to need to be moved around. And how much students are having to advocate themselves for those schedules. But so far, it's worked out with a few glitches here and there. You know, we have, we've sometimes had. Uh, religious, weekly religious meeting times conflict with when classes are happening. And we've worked with particular students to work through that, or we've had a student that really needed to finish their court court appointed uh, program before they were able to turn to school. And so they missed the first couple weeks of the semester, but we've never had any major conflicts and knock on wood, (laughs) maybe that's, maybe that'll happen at some point, but so far it's, it's been able to, to allow people to balance multiple obligations.
2: Is this a program you'd like to see replicated in in more prisons? And if so, why or why not?
1: That question, I think, brings up for me the issue of in what ways are college and prison programs prison augmenting? You know, the the cliche of putting lipstick on the pig. Are we taking something that's really uh, ugly and damaging and just making it appear more beautiful or functional. And so I I absolutely think that we should have more college access for historically and contemporarily marginalized people, including incarcerated people. And so having more college and prison programs at a variety of colleges and universities directly addresses the ivory tower problem of keeping education in bespoke spaces where there's limited access for people. In, in a variety of circumstances, and for me, the the Emerson Prison Initiative's motto is expanding access to higher education. So that's that is my goal, and I would love to see that replicated as much as possible. Um, I, I just want to acknowledge that in doing so, we there is a kind of complicity with uh, with prisons with the criminal justice system because in order for us to operate we have to follow and we do follow all of the department of correction policies and procedures and that does not feel abolitionist <laughs> to a lot of people some people will say oh but it's that's you're just doing a reformist agenda and you're not addressing the underlying issues and i have come. I've made peace with that recently, I think, in being able to recognize that what we're doing is, at its core, it is an abolitionist vision of trying to fundamentally change social hierarchy and how it operates by opening up opportunities to people who would not otherwise have them. And to achieve that goal, we have to work in very pragmatic ways that, might, that, that may appear reformist, but the core mission is something that's really speaking to addressing structural injustice at its roots.
2: For you administering this and doing this, what has been your biggest challenge?
1: Well, it's a tremendous workload, <laughs> and I think my my family would say the biggest challenge is just that there are not enough hours in the day for me to uh, work my day job as a professor, administer the prison initiative, and do other service work that I do. Maintain my own research agenda. It is hugely time consuming because it is essentially uh, building, maintaining, running a micro college on a prison campus in the most restrictive environment possible. And that takes just a huge amount of work. So that is that is one of the many challenges that we face. What is
2: your favorite part of doing this job?
1: My favorite part is seeing that light bulb moment with students as they start to see the world and their role in it differently. And I recently had the pleasure of meeting with one of our students who uh who had been released from prison and is now fi- fi- finding his way in the world and he said you know i didn't realize it when when i was inside before inside prison but public speaking is a matter of life or death having the ability to articulate my ideas and speak my mind in a way that is non-confrontational but still but still making my point is a skill and i didn't i didn't ever have the opportunity to learn that skill and i learned it in college and another <laughs> with with another student we had an interaction i had come back this was maybe last year the the third year in the or the almost the fourth year of the curriculum, and they were taking classes that had scaffolded upon other classes. And the students said, Oh, I see what you're doing here. First, you had us take your class on power and privilege. And then you had us take these literature classes where we where we're reading about some of these issues of power in various circumstances. And then We took economics classes where we're learning about economic structures and how that works. And now we're taking this set of classes where we're having to apply all of those things into our own original research and being able to to apply ideas to cases of interest to us. He said, I see what you're doing. You're just giving us these tools one at a time so that we can have more of a voice. And I was like, yeah, you you see my agenda. (laughs) So those are my favorite moments when I think, Things really click for students and they, they see the why for themselves. What do you hope this
2: episode sparks?
1: I hope that this episode sparks some deep reflection on the criminal justice system in the United States and what it means to cage humans as a response to social transgression. I think we need to look at that and reflect on if there is another way to obtain justice to address issues of injustice and i i mentioned my master's degree earlier i did a piece in social peace and justice studies in an international context and a lot of that was focused on social justice as a public good and looking at the difference between retributive justice or punitive justice that is punishing and restorative justice that's seeking to address what is broken in a transgression. And I, I think that there needs to be a reckoning with the retributive justice model that incarceration is part of in this country and a shift towards seeking a restorative justice model that is going to actually allow for the kind of intervention and transformation that will, that will let people return to their communities Healed themselves and knowing how to heal the wrongs that may have that may have uh, taken place earlier. I related to that. I think we need to have a conversation about who has access to higher education, and obviously, this is on the agenda of presidential candidates and <laughs> and legislators, and and it's in the national conversation about college should be free. We should rethink who has access but we, we really do need to address that because we, we see that education can be transformative for so many people in so many ways. Let's talk about who gets access to it, when and how. And I want those conversations to happen and I'm hopeful that the Emerson Prison Initiative can be part of it.
2: Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Manisha Gelman, and telling us about your work and about the Emerson Prison Initiative. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler and you've been listening to The Academic Life, on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.
1: With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.